Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12. I don't know if, uh, about you, but I was kind of excited to be a part of the special music tonight. I don't normally get to be a part of the special music. So that was kind of a new experience. Enjoyed that. Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, wicked sinner? You probably have some kind of uh, mental picture that you pull up, Uh, maybe a serial killer, right? Maybe a corrupt politician who's making lots and lots of money while people in his district suffer. Uh, Maybe you think of somebody who abuses alcohol, drugs, somebody who swears and curses. But do you ever think of a covetous person, somebody who isn't content with what God has given them and, and just wants more? Sometimes we forget that one of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not covet. And that's a, that's a hard command to keep because it's an easy one to break. Because it's something that happens internally, inside. People can look at me and I can look really, really good on the outside, but in my heart, I'm covetous. What exactly does a covetous person look like? Well, again, maybe we go to the extreme. And maybe we say it's that corrupt politician, or maybe we say it's the worker at a nonprofit who over years embezzles thousands, if not millions of dollars. Now, maybe we think of the, the CEO who's, who's putting an obscene number of hours into the office because he just wants to get ahead and he wants to make more and he's ignoring his family at home because of that. But what have I told you that a wicked, covetous person could look like a hardworking farmer planning for retirement? Well, that's a little bit scarier because by that definition, I might count as covetous and you might count as covetous. In the passage that we're going to be looking at today, somebody asked Jesus a question. And if we're going to be honest, to many of us, this would seem like a pretty reasonable question. But Jesus sees something very different. You see, Jesus looks and he sees a heart that's grown to love and cherish money when it should be cherishing God. In fact, one of the most disturbing things about the account that we're going to read is how perfectly reasonable covetous people can be. The request that Jesus would correct the wrongdoings of a brother taking advantage of his brother really doesn't seem that scandalous. Someone who ended up with wasted crop and so was planning on building a better storage facility doesn't sound like our idea of a wicked person. But both of these men had serious problems. And that's sobering because as we look at ourselves and we think that we are fine, maybe we have a problem too and we just haven't realized it. I want us to read together uh, Luke chapter 12 and we're going to read verses 13 all the way through 21. It says, And one of the company said unto him, that's Jesus, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he, that's Jesus, said unto him, Man, Who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This I will do. I will pull down my barns, And build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, 
and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, as we come and we study your word, um, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes, that we would come humble, that as James says, we would come with meekness, ready to receive the word which is able to save our souls. Um, Father, I, I pray right now as I preach this message that you'd give me courage, that you'd give me clarity, that you'd help me to explain well uh, the powerful truth that's in these verses. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, be willing to examine our own hearts. It's easy to look across the aisle or to think of somebody else who really needs to hear this message. I pray for all of us, myself included, that the person uh, most impacted by this would be us. And I pray that, um, that as we study this, that you would give us greater understanding, that you would give us a greater humility, and that you'd give us a greater love and desire to follow after and to serve you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at the passage, uh, really it breaks down into two halves. Uh, You have this back and forth between Jesus and an unnamed man asking Jesus to uh, uh, rebuke his brother for not dividing the inheritance. And then we have Jesus telling the parable. I'm going to break it down further though and say that we're going to start off by looking at the problem. That's going to be in verses 13 through 14. Jesus is going to point out a problem and this man is going to come to Jesus with a problem And the problem that they see is not exactly the same problem. Then Jesus is going to give a principle. We're going to take a few minutes and think about that principle together. And then we're going to look at the parable. And then after we've gone through this passage together, I want to take a few minutes and just look at some of the practical application that we can make from this. So we're going to start off with the problem, the principle, the parable, and then the practical. Let's start off with the problem. We see it in verse 13. It says, And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Now, I've already mentioned uh, this man is coming to Jesus with a problem. And I think if we were going to be honest, for most of us, this does not seem like that big a deal that he would ask Jesus to do this. You see, the problem from the man's viewpoint was that his brother was being covetous. Did you notice that? From his perspective, his brother is being covetous. Jesus, Master, um, can you please tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Essentially, he's saying, Teacher, Master, can you please tell my brother to stop robbing me? Okay, if we, if we assume that he's, he's being truthful and honest and that there's not two sides to this story, which, which often happens, Proverbs says a man's way is right until another examines him, right? Always be careful that you don't just hear one side of the story. But if we accept, as Jesus seems to accept, uh, that this man is telling the truth and his brother is, is doing something that he shouldn't be, is holding back, well then, we would look at this and say that it doesn't seem that unreasonable. Let's imagine that before uh, you came in tonight, <clears throat> when you were out in the lobby, you started talking to one of your close friends. And their parents had passed away a month ago. And now they share with you that their parents had made one of their siblings chief executor of the estate and hadn't put any other obligations on that. And you find out, they tell you, their sibling is keeping over 90% of your parents' assets for themselves and their children and that your friend is going to end up getting very little from all of this. What would your reaction have been? 
oh man, that's not right. I can't believe they would do that. Uh, it's very easy as we, as we look at this man. It, when we read the scriptures and, and we know the ending and we know who the good guy and the bad guy is, it's very easy to immediately put ourselves on the side of the good guy. But if we're actually going to think about this, if you're there in the crowd and this person asks this question, this doesn't really seem like an unreasonable request. And in fact, this is even more reasonable when we realize that rabbis often settled such disputes. Daryl Bach in the IVP commentary on Luke says, quote, Often rabbis served as mediators in such disputes, and so this man approaches Jesus as he would a leader of the Jewish community, end quote. Normally in ancient times, family resources would be pooled. It's possible that for these brothers, their parents had died, and the older brother wanted to keep everything combined, right? Because he doesn't want his younger brother taking his portion and then just leaving with it. No, 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 let's keep it all together. I'm not going to divide out your part and give it to you. I'm going to keep it all here, and you can stay here with me, and we can share. So why shouldn't the younger brother demand what is rightfully his? That's the problem from the viewpoint of this man. Hey, my brother is being covetous. The problem from Christ's viewpoint is that the man was being covetous. Now again, as I said, we don't know much else about this situation. Was this man only giving half the story? You know, you could talk to your friend out there and your friend could tell you that uh, their sibling is keeping 90% of the assets and what they don't tell you is that roughly 80% of the assets have to go to paying off debts and other things and that they are actually splitting it. And so perhaps this man was being cheated. Perhaps uh, he um, uh, wasn't being cheated. But in either case, Jesus looks at the man and he recognizes that he was allowing the time, the, allowing the money to consume his time and his thought. There is, of course, the possibility that what this man wanted would have seemed perfectly reasonable to us, but that it revealed a heart, it revealed a heart that was twisted by the love of money. As we already noted, it's kind of ironic. He would have looked at his brother and thought his brother was being the covetous one, and we would have assumed the same. The attitude, this is where we have to watch out, the attitude that says, well, I just want what's rightfully mine can be, heart, can be motivated by a heart of covetousness. And I think this is important to realize because as we think about the problem of covetousness, this is one of the dangers is that legitimate concerns can sometimes become a mask for our own covetousness. My brother isn't treating me fairly regarding the inheritance may be true. It also may, doesn't have to be, but it may be a mask for covetousness. I deserve a raise may be true, but it also may be a mask for covetousness. Oh, we need a bigger house for uh, all these kids that we're having may be true, but it also may be a mask for covetousness. You see, a covetous heart is a disposition that is unthankful for what God has given me. And if we're not careful, we can come up with really good excuses to hide the fact that in our hearts, we're not thankful and content with what God has given to us. <clears throat> so, we're standing in the crowd and we're hearing this back and forth, and perhaps we're surprised by what Jesus says. Verse 14, and he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And I'm wondering if Jesus is looking around, and again, there's a, a custom where rabbis would help with such disputes, and Jesus, without asking any questions, at least that we have recorded here, immediately says, you're the problem. You've got a covetous heart. And I can't help but wonder if he's looking around at the crowd and he sees a lot of really confused faces. 
why, you know, that, that seems like a reasonable request. And so Jesus stops and he makes a teaching moment out of this for everybody that's there. And we've seen the problem. Let's look at the principle. The principle is this. Verse 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. There's a warning here and then there's a truth here. Jesus gives a warning and then he bases that on the truth. Let's look at each half of that. First of all, the warning. The warning is watch out, look out, beware of covetousness. The first uh, word that we see here is the word take heed. Take heed. Take heed comes from a Greek word which means to see. You could translate this, watch out. Be on the lookout for. Hey, be vigilant. Be watching. The second word there is take heed and beware. This is a word that uh, is often translated as guard. So uh, if you're watching over a precious treasure and uh, you've been in, put in, in, in charge of it, then you're, you're supposed to guard it, right? And so the idea is that, th- that Jesus is, is painting here is that um, <clears throat> you are somebody who is looking very intensely, very carefully, like a guard late at night, watching for an enemy. One of the most horrific wars that was ever fought was World War II. And a lot of that war was horrific, but one of the horrific parts of it was the battles over the Pacific Islands. And if you've ever uh, looked at all into these, these battles, it was absolutely awful. They'd be in these, uh, these foxholes, they'd be there at night, and the enemy would wear camouflage, they would sneak around, and they would climb into these holes, they would kill the soldiers there, and then they'd be out before you even knew what happened in the dead of night. So you can imagine, if you're a soldier in that foxhole, or in, the, in those holes, looking around, you're terrified. And you're constantly on the look for any movement, for a bush to move, or, or a twig to snap, because for all you know, that's, a, that's an enemy combatant that's trying to kill you and destroy you. I mean, it would, and again, it's, it's nighttime. It's when you're supposed to be sleeping. You can just imagine how awful that would have been. Borderline paranoia of, of trying to look and watch and be ready for the enemy. I think, um, I think that's not a terrible illustration for how we should be when it comes to covetousness. Jesus uses two words here. He says, watch. He says, be on the guard. Be on the lookout. Why? Because this enemy of covetousness, it slips in so quickly and so silently and so easily. Be ready. Be on the lookout. Covetousness requires intense uh, vigilance. It is a deadly threat that sneaks up on us without us giving much thought. And covetousness has the ability to ruin our love for God, to distract us from the great commission and the service that we've been put on this planet for, and to leave us further vulnerable to other attacks from the enemy. And the whole time, we don't even realize that it's happening. This man was probably surprised. The crowd was probably surprised. The parable that we're about to read here was surprised. No doubt the man would have been surprised. And God is giving us all of this so that we don't have to be surprised. So that we can be ready and on the lookout for covetousness. So he begins with a warning as we look at this principle, but he follows it up with the truth. And he says, life isn't determined by what you have. For man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. 
Covetousness reduces our life to stuff. It looks at life, and the only question it asks is, how can I get more? And the danger with this, folks, is that this is such a natural progression because, because we're locked into this at a certain level, right? Be- because we have to ask the question, how am I going to get food? Where am I going to stay? What kind of clothes am I going to wear? These are natural things that, that take up our time and our attention. And so the, the danger is that those questions begin to balloon, that, that they begin to take up more and more of our thought time. And that doesn't happen overnight where one day we're just kind of healthfully thinking about, you know, and thankful for what God has given us. And then, okay, what, what do I need to do? Um, and being thankful for God's gifts. And then the next day we're just totally consumed by covetous. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens slowly, little by little, bit by bit, as we find ourselves spending more time looking at the budget, as we find ourselves spending more time checking out our 401k, as we find ourselves putting a few more extra hours in the office, not because we really need to, not because we, we need the money or because work needs us to, but because, well, it, it'd be nice to have a little bit of extra uh, spending cash at the, at the end of the month. And, and little by little, small steps can lead us away from the Lord into a place where we're being dominated by covetousness. And so this reminder of Christ is so important. My life is not about what I have. That's not what life is about. Some of the wealthiest people in the world are spiritually bankrupt. Some of the most spiritual people in the world own own almost nothing. And it's so natural, it's such a human tendency to just think through our lives in terms of what do I have, what can I add, what's the next financial step? And, and we have to be careful with this because this is, this is where the tension and this is where the balance comes in, is we also want to be wise with the resources that God has given us, right? I mean, if God has given us money, if, if he's given us opportunities, if he's given us a home and he's given us nice things, we should be thankful for those things and, and, and we should seek to steward them well and we should seek to steward the money that God has given us. But we always have to keep in our minds that, that this stuff is not really what life is about. Life is about people. Life is about ministry. Life is about worshiping and serving God. And my heart, I I know, will very quickly turn into how much money do I have and how can I save and how can I get more money and what can I buy? And, you know, you do kind of the the paper game, but now it's Facebook Marketplace game where you guys guys do this, right? I don't want this anymore, so I'll sell that and I'll buy something else cheap on Marketplace that I want. And, And it can be very easy to get caught up into this whole mindset and to begin to forget that my life isn't defined by the stuff that I have. There's a warning here. Be on the lookout for covetousness. It will sneak up on you and it will destroy you. It will ruin your relationship with God. It will poison your relationship with others. It will leave you open to the attacks of the enemy. And there's a truth behind it because your life isn't about what you own. There's so many more important things than the stuff that you have. And so Jesus really wants to drive this home and so he tells a parable, he tells a story that's supposed to make us think, that's supposed to warn us. And the story is of a hardworking farmer who's planning for retirement. I mean, that's, that's what the story is about. Planning can be good, but again, as we saw, planning can be a cover for covetousness. Making plans for the future can, doesn't have to be, but it can be dangerous because our hearts easily and naturally slide from careful stewardship of God's resources to a covetous desire to maximize my stuff. So let's look at the story together. First of all, we're going to see that God sends blessing. We see that in verse 16. It says, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. 
Now I want to bring in some other um, scripture here at this point and know that this story is beginning with God's blessing. How do we know that? Well, because Matthew, uh, Sermon on the Mount, teaches us that God sends his reign on the just and the unjust. You don't have anything unless God gives it to you. So know how this story begins. This story begins with God bringing material blessing, um, um, financial blessing to this farmer. And this is important because uh, many Jewish people, and for that many that matter, uh, many Christians today, uh, but many of the Jewish people that Jesus would have been speaking to and many Christians today, equate the blessing of God with the approval of God. When Jesus made the statement to his disciples that um, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, they were shocked. Because they looked at rich people and they thought, well, if they're rich, they must be doing something right. God must be blessing them. Um, This is the thinking of Job's friends, is it not? Well, Job, you were doing really well. And then God took all your stuff away. Must be your sinning. Because if you do well, then God's going to bless you. And if you don't do well, then God's going to make your life miserable. And your life is miserable, therefore you must have sinned. Uh, this is kind of the default of, of a lot of us, is it not? And certainly when we look at broader Christianity, there's a whole movement called the health and wealth gospel that says, hey, if God loves you, you're going to have lots of stuff. This is just kind of naturally the way we think. If I am good, God's going to like me. If God likes me and God owns everything, he's going to give me lots of stuff. On, on one level, that's natural, that we think that the blessing of God is the approval of God. Now, it might be, okay? God does give blessings, and when we follow him, sometimes material blessings do follow, and in fact, that can be one of the great dangers, is that you have an individual or a a group of people, maybe a church, or even a whole nation that seeks to follow God, and as they follow God, and as they seek to live wisely, and as they seek to live by his word, and as they follow the principles that he put forward in scripture, as they start living a Proverbs life, they start seeing Proverbs blessings, right? They live wise lives, and God brings material blessings, and yet those very blessings, if we're not careful, can begin to turn our eyes away from him. Blessing, material blessing from God, may not always be a sign of his approval, Sometimes it's actually a test. And we don't realize that. We're patting ourselves on the back because we're thinking, oh, hey, I'm doing great. God sent me blessing. And really, God is sending a test our way. And if you think that you're good when God is sending you a test, you're in trouble. We see this theme repeated again and again throughout Scripture. Um, If you've studied through the book of Hosea, there's a, a theme that shows up again and again that God blessed Israel materially and they took those blessings and they went and they worshipped other gods. Um, we see that the New Testament warns the rich to watch out for pride and to be generous and giving. First uh, Timothy chapter 6. I want to read these verses uh, just briefly. But First Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 18. It says, charge them that are rich in this world. Okay, we're talking about material wealth. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, that they don't become proud. Why? Because it's easy to become proud if you've got a lot of stuff. It is. Nor to trust in uncertain riches, because if you've got money, it's easy to put your confidence in that wealth. Well, let's see here. What are my, what's my mutual funds at? What, how much money do we have in the bank? Oh, okay, we're good. We're good. We could, we could survive some pretty big, you know, we, we've got a lot of breathing room, we might say. Says... But instead, trust in the living God who giveth 
richly all things to enjoy. Charge them how? Verse 18, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, to share, that they be generous people. You know, the Bible does not look at wealth and see it as a bad thing. There are certain ideas that are popular today that says that if you're wealthy, if you have something that somebody else doesn't, that means that you are inherently a bad person. That's not what the Bible says. But the Bible does say this. It warns that if you have wealth, there are all kinds of traps that come along with that. And the Bible says that it's very easy to be a bad person if you have a lot of money. It's very easy to fall into all kinds of traps. The church at Laodicea found this out. They became proud and, and self-reliant. Um, God said to them that he was going to come and, and he was going to try them. In fact, I'm just going to uh, turn there. Revelation uh, chapter 3, <clears throat> verse number uh, 15. It says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, ready for this? I am rich. And increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Laodicea looked at their material financial situation, and they said, hey, we're doing really well, must be everything's okay. And God said, no, everything's not okay. I'm not looking at your finances, I'm not looking at your checkbook, I'm not looking at your bank statement, I'm looking at your heart, and you've got major problems. When you become rich, be careful this can actually be a trial, a test of your faith. And you, maybe you say, well, you know, Pastor Ben, that's great. I hope the rich people in here are listening. Um, I don't really feel like I'm rich. Well, let me just say a couple of things to you. First of all, anyone can be covetous. It's easier if you have more money, okay? The more you have, the easier it is to fall in love with your stuff. Okay, if you don't have a lot of stuff, it's hard to spend all your time thinking about it and obsessing it and loving it. But anyone can so um, let him that standeth take heed lest he fall, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians. Secondly, following the wisdom of God's word often, though not always, but often leads to greater wealth. Um, you may be here today and, and maybe you're young and you're newly married or you're a kid and you're like, I'm, I'm not rich. Well, keep following God's word, keep doing what's right, and I wouldn't be surprised if in 10, 15, 20, 35, 40 years, you might look at, at what God has done and how he's blessed you and just be absolutely overwhelmed by his goodness and his generosity. And thirdly, I'll say this. You may not be as poor as you think you are. I looked it up. Over 50% of the world makes less than $10,000 annually. I think this is a really important message for us as Americans because the reality is we have so much. The poorest among us have so, so much. And so we all need to listen and we shouldn't think, oh, well, that's not me. I'm, I'm not really rich. So God sends wealth to this man. It's a blessing. But this blessing is actually a test and it's a test that he's going to absolutely fail. So let's look at the problem and the solution from this rich man's perspective. In verse 17, he says, and he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. Okay, so what happened? So what happened is he's a farmer, he plants crop, it's harvest season, and he has what we would call a bumper crop. I mean, it's just, there's tons and tons, and he fills up his barn, and he has leftover. Okay, well, that's wasted, right? That's wasted product. What are you going to do about that? He, he decides, 
verse 18, and he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and will build greater, and there uh, will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Um, Notice that phrase there, he thought within himself. God is, Jesus here is, is opening for us the internal thinking of a covetous person. And I want us to note a couple of things about it. First of all, note that it was entirely self-focused. God blessed him. He had more than he knew what to do with. And what pronoun do we read over and over and over again? What shall I do? Because I have no room with to bestow my fruits. And he said, this I will do. I will pull down my barns and I will build greater. And they will be, there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thy knees, eat, drink, and be merry. It's entirely self-focused. God never enters the picture here. Not once. Others never enter the picture here. Not once. If we were to read our Old Testament, it's very clear that God expected those who were wealthy to be generous and to be giving to those who didn't have as much. And yet this man, although he has more than he knows what to do with, isn't thinking to himself, how can I be a blessing to others with what God has given me? He's just thinking, man, how do I, how do I plan this so that I don't have to work? That's what I want. Now he could have just given away all the extra, come back and done the same exact thing next year, but that's, he says, no, I, I want to build bigger facilities so that I'm able to make more money so that I can retire early. Not so that I can then go serve God, not so that I'll have more to share with others, so that I can have a great time. Christian, be careful how you think about retirement. I'm not saying you can't retire. I'm not saying you have to work until you're 85 years old and can't get out of bed in the morning. I'm not saying that. But what is your vision of retirement? Do other people play a role in it? Does God play a role in it? You know, I'm I'm so thankful. One of the things that's really neat working on staff here is that I get to see some of these retired men who don't have have a full-time job and come in and help around the grounds. And that's, that's an encouragement to me, that they're, that they're willing to give of their time and come and serve the Lord. And it doesn't have to look like that. I'm not telling you what it has to look like. The point isn't to give you this bullet list of saying, okay, here's what you have to do. You have to do this and this, and you have to give this much money, because that would defeat the whole point. The point is not, here's your checklist so that you can get through it, and then go over here and spend your money and your time how you really want. The point is that asking the question, how can I spend my time and my money the way I really want, is the wrong question to begin with. The real question, because that's the question that he's asking. The real question is, Lord, how can I use the good things that you've given me to serve you and to serve others? Because eternity is coming. And I can have a great time here on earth, but if I'm not investing for eternity, then I've missed the whole point. His only goal was ease and prosperity. He saw his wealth as an opportunity to have a better life not as an opportunity to serve others. So, that was the problem and the solution from the rich man's perspective. Let's look at the problem and the solution from God's perspective. Well, God's perspective is summed up uh, pretty quickly in verse 20. But God said unto him, Thou fool. Okay? Uh, Forgive me for being so blunt in the pulpit. He looks at the man and says, You idiot. That's that's the, the impact of this. 
What an absolute moron. How could you have been so dumb? You see, what he did was not just evil. It wasn't just wicked. He looked at it and thought, okay, how can I plan? And and he thought he had this really great plan put together. This is what I'm going to do. And God comes to him and says, your plan is stupid. It totally misses the boat. Why? Because there's something he hadn't considered. Well, there's actually two things he hadn't considered. Number one, he hadn't considered the fact that God at any time could change his plans. He hadn't accounted for God. He said, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Right here, right now. As we think about our material assets, as we think about what we have, as we think about the wealth that God has given us, we always have to remember that at any moment it could be gone. God could just come in and he could take it away. And and he has the right to do that. The stock market could crash tomorrow and you could be planning on retirement and watch your 401k drop by half. Okay, that happened to people. 2008, I know people who, it's half gone. God could do that. Um, you, you, may be, you may have made all of these plans and, and got all of this worked up, and I think we're going to do this, and then 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 God just comes and totally changes all of that. You lose your job, and now all of a sudden you're thinking, okay, well, uh, what are we going to do? We, you know, we just bought a house, and, and we've, you know, we're trying to make this mortgage payment. And how, how is all of this going to work? So what's the solution? Is the solution not to plan at all? No, the solution is to plan, but to plan with God in mind, to plan humbly and submissively, and to bring your plans before the Lord and say, all right, Lord, uh, this is what we think, this is what we, we believe is the best way to use the resources that you've given us, but you, you, you call the shots, and so we've made our plans, but we know that ultimately it's up to you, and so we're trusting you to take care of us. This is exactly what James is talking about in James chapter 4, this attitude, this humility that says, I'm just going to trust God. James chapter 4, verse, uh, let's see here, 13 says, Go to now ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get grain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Is he telling them not to plan? No. He's telling them that their plan should always begin with, if the Lord will. Now, I had a, uh, someone that I knew growing up who always used to use the expression, Lord willing. Just every opportunity, right? Like, all right, see you tomorrow, Lord willing. You're kind of like, oh, yeah. I guess something could happen between now and then. Sure, yeah, Lord willing. Um, and, uh, just, and, and I think, you know, there was a good heart behind that. There was a submissiveness to, submissiveness to God. But I think sometimes we may hear Lord willing and we may, uh, we may be a little bit too casual with that. We may just think that it's kind of like an expression that you say, yeah, well, Lord willing, if it doesn't rain tomorrow. And I don't think that's exactly what James means here. I think he's talking about a disposition of the heart that says, I'm going to submit myself to what God has. Lord, here's my plans Here's what I think it would be the, the best way to use the resources that you've given me. But they're yours. My plans are yours. And you don't need my permission to mess my life up and to change things completely and radically. You don't need my permission to do that. But you have it. And I'm just going to trust you. And I can put my head down and, on my pillow and sleep well tonight. Not because I have a full bank account, because something could happen and that could be gone tomorrow. But because I've got a father who's taking care of me. 
Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. God could at any time come and change our plans. But also, it was foolish because he didn't really plan for the things that matter. He said, then who shall these thing, those things be which thou hast provided? He says, great, you're going to build big barns. You're going to have lots and lots of money, but you're going to die. Who's going to get it then? The answer is it doesn't matter who gets it then. Not you. What are you going to have? You're going to stand before God, Jesus is saying in this parable to this man. God is speaking in the parable to this man, and he's saying, look, you're going to stand before me. What do you actually have to show? You know, we could set in our minds the goal of maximizing our personal wealth and building up our plans and saving and getting a nice car and then trading it in a few years for a nicer car and then getting a home and trading it in for a few years later for a bigger home. And, and we could make that our goal. We want to get ahead. We want to have lots and lots of money. We want to have a lot of wealth. And you can do that, generally speaking, right? Typically, you follow the Proverbs lifestyle, you work hard, you're diligent. Um, you can get ahead and then you die. And, and then what? You see, the, the plans that were made were made for things that don't really matter. And this is why, this is why God looks at him and says, you fool. Because he worked so hard. What a tragedy this is. He worked so hard and spent so much time planning for things that didn't matter, and he completely ignored planning for the things that do matter. So what about you? Are you as careful about your church attendance and your service as you are your stock portfolio? Do you follow your budget more carefully and closely than your devotional plan? Because if we're not careful, we can give all of our effort to our personal wealth while neglecting the greater thing, our relationship with God and service to others. And so there's a conclusion to the parable here. Verse 21, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Once again, we see a contrast. Seeking to be rich or seeking to be rich toward God. One will be more important than the other because you're human and you only have so much time and so much effort. You're either going to be focusing on your riches or you're going to be focusing on your God. And your heart is going to lead one way or the other towards God or towards your bank statement. What happened in this parable doesn't have to happen to you. This is a warning to you. It's a warning to me. Warning us. God giving us a wake-up call so that we don't one day stand before him and God say, you fool. You planned. Man, you planned hard and you planned well, but you planned for all the things that didn't actually matter in the end. So, we've looked at the problem. We've looked at the principle. We've looked at the parable. I want us to conclude by just looking at the practical. We've kind of just worked our way through this uh, verse by verse. I want us to, in the conclusion here, I just kind of want to make a few observations as we close tonight. Things that hopefully we can take away uh, that summarize the key lessons from this parable Uh, that we can remember. First of all, uh, this. Remember that blessing can be a test, not just a reward. If you receive material financial blessings, you should be thankful and you should also be very cautious because you are facing a test to see what you're going to do, to see where your heart's going to go, to see how you're going to use the good things that God gave you. God gave you that blessing. And so remember that blessing can be a test, not just a reward. Sometimes it's a reward, But it's often, if not always, also a test. Secondly, keep God first in your plans. The most important question that we always have to be asking is, okay, God, what do you want in this situation? 
hey, we, we'd, like for you to have a, we'd like for you to have a raise. We've got a, a new job position that's opening up for you. Don't assume that God wants you to take that. Well, it's a lot more money. Ah, uh, but I don't, I don't know if, if the time and, and working on Sundays and is this really, is this really what's best for me and, and my family? I'm not saying you can't ever take a raise. And I realize in certain lines of work, uh, you have to work Sundays. I'm thankful for the, for the doctors and the police officers that are working on Sundays. I, I get that. But when you face new financial um, opportunities, or when new things come and, and, you, and it's time, okay, we've got to make plans, always, always, always keep first in your mind, God, what do you want? And it's going to come down to wisdom. I don't think God's going to speak from heaven and tell you, take the job, or, you know, don't take the job, Okay. And, and, and there's going to be weighing and, 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 okay, what are the pros? What are the cons? But it, it, in the background of all of that needs to be this question, God, what do you want? Because if this is not what you want, I don't want it. I don't care if they pay me half a million dollars. If it's not what you want, I don't want it. Remember that blessing can be a test, not just a reward. Keep God first in your plans. And then look to give, not just to save. Saving's not bad. I think saving is important. But do what you can to, to cultivate a generous spirit. Are you somebody that loves to give? Are you somebody that when you see the blessings come in, you can't wait to send them out to other people? Look to give, not just to save. And then finally, prioritize the eternal. Prioritize the eternal. Remember the blessing can be a test, not just a reward. Keep God first in your plans. Look to give, not just to save. And then finally, remember that the most important thing it's what happens after you die because that is forever. And this, this is for 70 to 80 years. Scripture reminds us that we should not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Covetousness is dangerous because covetousness can destroy our love for God and it can do it so slowly that, that we barely notice anything is happening. It starts off with us wisely stewarding God's resources. And God has given us resources and we want to be wise stewards. But over time, our hearts can begin to love and to cherish the blessing God sends our way until eventually they replace him. And before we know it, we are more careful to save than we are to serve. We put in extra hours to make overtime, but we don't invest in our families or our walk with God. And so as I conclude here tonight, remember the warning of Jesus to take heed and beware of covetousness. For man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he has possesseth. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's stand and we'll close our service in a word of prayer. Bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to give just a minute to respond to the message. Um, you don't have to come forward. You don't have to get on your knees. But maybe uh, just to search your own heart to pray. Uh, with the psalmist, Lord, search me and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. Maybe you, you're here and you say, I don't know if I'm uh, the rich fool from this parable. I, I don't know, but I might be. I would encourage you just to spend some time searching your heart and asking God to search your heart and to see if there's covetousness, if there's an unhealthy love for, for money, for wealth, for the things that he's given. And uh, so I'm going to give just a moment of silence for that and then and then I'll close our service together in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. 
And we thank you that you richly bless us, that you give us um, so many good things. We think especially of the spiritual blessings uh, that we sang about tonight, the wonderful, rich blessings of our salvation, of the work that Christ did on Calvary, of the hope of the gospel. But you don't stop there. You also will often give us spiritual or, or physical material blessings as well. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all um, to see that wealth as a gift and a blessing, but also as a test to see where our heart lies. Lord, if there are some here tonight, and I'm sure in a room this size there are, if there are some here tonight who've gotten off track, who've begun to love money and the things that money can buy, I pray that you'd use this message, and more importantly, I pray that you'd use the words of Jesus to convict their hearts, to bring them back. May we be people who prioritize the eternal, who keep you first in our plans. May we be people who look to give, and to give and to give and to give, and not to save and to hoard. Thank you for your forgiveness of all of our sins, even the sin of covetousness. Help us as we leave this place to be joyful, serving, and focused on eternity. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.